Well, you can see by the title on the screen where we are headed this morning, and it's a big one, a big subject, taking a stand on the biblical truth about sexuality and gender. And the, the, the background story behind this Sunday's theme actually begins with the church up in Edmonton, Canada. Now, if you're not up to date on your map studies, and shame on you if you're not, Edmonton is located in the province of Alberta, which is directly north of Missoula, Montana, and even north of Calgary. In Edmonton, there is a wonderful body of Christ followers called Grace Life Church. There's a picture for you uh, for context. And Grace Life is pastored by a graduate of the Master's Seminary by the name of James Coates. You can see his picture there on the right. Now, that name James Coates may be uh, be familiar to you. Almost one year ago, back in February of 2021, Pastor James was arrested by Canadian authorities for continuing to have in-person worship services at Grace Life Church during the COVID lockdown. And for his trouble, James spent five weeks in jail and paid a fine of $1,500 for violating Canada's Public Health Act. Now, the story of James's five weeks in jail is really pretty amazing. If you have the time, I suggest you look it up. Uh, very encouraging. You will find out that his witness in jail was, was quite spectacular. And the stories he tells of the support that he got both from his jailers and from his fellow inmates is very, very interesting. I know it was not an easy time. Ask Jeff Steele. Jail is not easy, right? And I know it wasn't easy for his family being separated from him for five weeks. But I do know this. The gospel went forth while he was in jail during that period of time. What I loved reading was his statement to the press when he came out. Very humble, he clarified the purpose for why he was there. There's the quote on the screen. He said, I am not a political revolutionary. I am simply here in obedience to Jesus Christ. It is this obedience that puts me at odds with the law. Now, whether you agree with him or not about whether he should have kept the church open, if he should or should not have had in-person worship services. Let's set that aside for now because there is room, I think, for faithful Christians to disagree on that. That's a matter of, of wisdom and discernment, not black or white. Regardless where you, where you stand on the issue of lockdown measures, that statement that Pastor James makes is a very important one. There are times when the law of the land is going to come into conflict with the instructions that God has given to His church. And I have no doubt that coming in the future, this is going to be happening more and more. So as things happen, rather than ignoring it, it's good for us to begin to prepare our hearts and to stiffen our spines for what will inevitably come our way. And when those moments come, it's going to require wisdom in how we respond. It's going to require courage. It's going to require resolve. And yes, the willingness to suffer for the very same cause that the apostles suffered for back in Acts chapter 5 You might recall when the high council of Jerusalem demanded that they stop teaching in the name of Jesus, they said, not going to do it because we must obey God rather than men. Now, here's the thing. Today's message is not about COVID policy at all. Pastor James and Grace Life Church are once again back in the center of the spotlight up in Canada, but this issue is much, much more important. This one is a direct attack against the Word of God and against the freedom that Christians have living in the West to openly preach the truth of Scripture and to privately counsel using the Bible and using biblical principles. And that that principle is what brings Oak Hill into the mix this morning. Now, generally, you can ask any of our elders, we are cautious about diving into so-called Christian movements or signing on to certain things. Because they always come with certain questions. I'll give you a few examples. Number one, does the issue at hand actually involve essentials of the Christian faith? Or is it some sort of side issue? If it's essential, we want to be involved. Number two, what's the motivation behind it? Are the people signing this petition or in this movement really serious about this issue? Or is it some form of Christian virtue signaling? And number three, who are we partnering with? If we sign on, are we truly with like-minded people promoting this cause? And in this case, as your elder team looked at the situation, we agreed wholeheartedly that this was a time to stand up and to speak. 
So here's a specific issue that is now threatening our freedoms. For now, it's only in Canada, but it's, it's right on the cusp in the UK and in Australia, and no doubt coming our way soon. Canada's Bill C-4 is what it's called. Bill C-4 recently passed through Parliament without objection. And it came into what they call royal law in Canada on, on January 8th, just eight days ago. This bill makes it a criminal offense to, quote, cause a person to undergo conversion therapy or to promote or advertise conversion therapy in any way. Now, that language needs some unpacking. From a secular perspective, conversion therapy is a psychological treatment that is designed to retrain same-sex attracted people to prefer the opposite sex. In other words, to change a person's sexual orientation from homosexual to heterosexual. Or at at the very minimum, to sort of lessen the romantic interest toward or their sexual attraction to people of the same sex. And increasingly, conversion therapy is also being used as treatment for individuals who have come to believe that they are transgendered to become what is known as cisgender, meaning somebody who embraces and is able to identify with their biological sex. But in either case, homosexuality or transgenderism, the Canadian government believes that conversion therapy is an abusive treatment, an abusive treatment because it causes a person to have to repress not just their feelings, but their very identity. And therefore, it must be outlawed. Okay, now, sidebar. As Bible-believing Christians, we're not fans of secular conversion therapy either. This is important. We don't support psychological training that fails to deal with the issues, the deeper issues of the heart. We, as Bible-believing Christians, trust in the power of God in salvation and the new birth and in the sufficiency of His Word to counsel the heart and bring about actual real transformation. Transformation of the whole person, not just change in thinking. Those are different things. And of course, we would condemn any psychological therapy that's either coercive or abusive. But at the same time, we should ask this question, why is it okay for a government to ban a therapy that some people want or seek out? That seems tyrannical, doesn't it? That seems like it goes against the basic human freedom to choose the type of help that people are looking for. But as we know, throughout the West, The LGBTQ lobby right now in government, backed by media and big tech, is very, very powerful. So powerful that they're actually able to lobby government and begin to get laws passed. So understand the distinction here. We're not fans here at Oak Hill of secular conversion therapy either. That's why we preach biblical counseling over and over again. Now here's one of the things you have to know about this particular bill in Canada. It comes with a statement of faith. And I use that language intentionally because today's guardians of gender and sexuality are in many ways like religious leaders. They make proclamations of what truth is, and they also decide who the heretics are. Bill C-4 states, get this now, the idea that heterosexuality and cisgender identity are preferable to homosexuality and transgender identity is a myth. It's a myth, they say. So here's a supposedly secular government involving itself in declarations of history, anthropology, and yes, religion. They're diving into things and claiming to be experts. And in spite of 6,000 years of evidence to the contrary, they have pronounced that heterosexuality is not preferable to homosexuality, something that even Darwin, if he could come back from the dead, would say, no, that's self-evident. Because we have thousands of years of human history that prove it. But I digress. Folks, this is religion in government. And according to the new high priests of sexuality and gender in Canada, as of eight days ago, your belief in God's design for mankind is a myth. That should cause us to sit up and take notice. Now, as the Western world steps onto this slippery slope, here is the the very real practical danger for the church. The definitions in this bill for things like conversion and therapy and counseling are intentionally broad and vague. So broad, in fact, that they could easily easily be used as a Trojan horse to shut down any and all biblical teaching 
on the subjects of sex and gender. Things that are foundational to our Christian faith, laws like this can shut us up completely. Given the definitions in this law, any preacher, any elder, any church counselor who declares even in private what the Bible says about homosexuality or transgenderism could face up to five years in prison in Canada. And get this, even parents can be criminally charged if they direct their children to what a prosecutor deems and can prove is actual conversion therapy. And so think about, think about the slope here. Any politically driven prosecutor, and by the way, we have tons of them in America right now. We're seeing that all over our country. A politically driven prosecutor could take hold of this very vague law and in a state of personal vengeance, target any pastor and any church that he or she wants. So here's the thing. I try not to be a chicken little. I'm not one of those guys that's like, oh, the world's falling, the world's falling, right? But sometimes you got to open your eyes and say, wow, this is a slippery slope. It doesn't take much imagination to see where this could lead in the future. Eventually, application of this law could be expanded to forbid not just teaching and counseling, but evangelism itself. Just talking about Jesus could be criminal in Canada. In a world where words are now considered violence, and you have to understand that's, that's where our culture's at. Words are now considered violence if they go against the culture. And if that's true, the enemies of Christ would love to paint any conversation that we have about Jesus as either coercive or abusive. So this is a spiritual battle that we're in. Shouldn't be a shock. It's a battle of worldviews, and some governments in the West seem hell-bent on establishing their own statements of faith and their own sacred texts, and then pursuing heretics that disagree with them. And yes, a church like ours could, at some point in the future, become a target. We could be in their crosshairs. The good news is Jeff Steele's promised that if I go to jail, he'll visit me. <laughs> right? I can run some systematic theology right. program from within jail. But no, I'm, I'm prepared for that. I've thought about that for a long time. So in light of Bill C-4, Pastor James Coates at Grace Life Church has been, get this, publicly warned by officials in Canada, do not preach on this subject. So guess what he's doing this morning? He is precisely teaching on sexuality and gender in Edmonton this morning. And we are joining him in that with thousands of other pastors across North America. In Canada, it's being done illegally. Think about that. Illegally. But they must obey God rather than men. And so this morning, they and we are openly declaring three things to the state. And yeah, this is going to go on YouTube. That's okay. Number one, that there's only one God and one Lord over his church, and it ain't government. Number two, that Scripture alone defines the truth about human sexuality and gender not the culture. And number three, that faithful Christians will not bow down to government or allow them to dictate what we preach in the pulpit or what we counsel in the halls of the church, period. So this is a time to speak out. It's a time to speak out. It's a time to lock arms with like-minded churches who will take a stand on God's word and not be moved. We have to fight to maintain the right to speak freely. We are not trying to antagonize the world. That is not our goal. We're to live peaceably, but we have to have the right to speak freely and to promote the gospel even when it comes into conflict with the tide of the culture. So, having said that, here's where I want to move, uh, here's what we want to do moving forward in the message here. I want to sketch out just the basics of a biblical view of sexuality and gender, nothing earth-shattering, just reinforcing some of the ideas that we hold sacred. But before I do that, I have to give just a few cautions so that I'm not misunderstood here this morning. This is not intended to be a message where we gather together in our very safe church space and shake our collective fists at the world and say, oh, look at all the sin out there. That is not the point of this message. This is not an anti-society or anti-culture message because the folks out there beyond the walls of the church the folks out there in the world, they are lost, they are blind, and they are confused right now. So we cannot expect them to think, believe, or act in any way other than how their nature dictates. And their nature is thoroughly carnal, so they're always going to seek after and desire fleshly things, the things of this world. Why would we expect them to act as we act or to see the world through the lens that we see? 
They can't. So we must verbalize equally our compassion for their spiritual lostness and truth-telling that will lead them to repentance in life. We've got to be balanced in that. Paul makes the case at the end of 1 Corinthians 5. He says this to the church. He says, what do you have to do with judging outsiders? Those on the outside, God judges. He goes on to say, hey, you guys, you church, you be concerned about the hypocrites within your walls, the ones who claim Christ but then don't act like it. That's your job, not outsiders. Peter adds this in 1 Peter 4. Judgment begins with the household of God. It's not our job to run. We all know the distinction between those who are saved and those who are not, the different worldviews. We know that. It's not our job then to run around and just point fingers at everybody. Judgment begins right here. Let's clean up our house. Let's make sure the hypocrisy is not here. So we don't condemn or mock the very people that we're called to reach with the gospel. We don't condemn or mock our harvest field. Instead, we offer them clarity in their confusion. We offer them sight in their blindness. And we offer them hope for reconciliation with God. That's our goal as the church. By the way, friends, in case you've been living in a bubble for the last 20 years or so, everything in life has shifted dramatically in this country. 25, 30 years, everything is different. This is no longer a nation that runs on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Alarm clock, wake up. We live in a post-truth era where we, as Christians, are the minorities in every single way. So we need to start thinking differently and strategizing differently. We need to start thinking more in the way the early church thought as they tried to spread the gospel in the midst of the pagan Roman Empire. It's a change in mindset. And so it's not enough to be a lukewarm Christian today. Not if you want to make an impact for the kingdom. If you want to blend in with the world, you are not going to make an impact for the kingdom. It's not enough to be lukewarm in these days. We're going to have to expand our knowledge. We're going to have to deepen our convictions. Our arguments have to become better. But most of all, our love has to be greater. And the consistency of our lives as Christ followers needs to grow. Those are the keys. If you want to make an impact for the kingdom and reach this confused world, your love has got to become greater and the consistency of your witness has to grow. Amen? So let's talk about sex and gender. One of the biggest roadblocks that we face in this discussion today is an obsession with the following statement. Put it on the screen. Gender is different from sex. You will see this everywhere. I mean, those of you who are younger than me, you know. You see this in social media all the time, right? This is very common. It's everywhere. Gender is to be treated differently from sex. And in that discussion, sex is defined biologically. It's defined by our chromosomes and our physical anatomy and our endocrine system, which produces hormones. And even the most hardened anti-theist has to agree that sex is binary. There is no spectrum. We just physically look and go, there's two choices. And they'll cede that to us. But when it comes to gender, that's where, the, that's where the battle is being fought today. Using gender is a tool that can be used to get around all the, prog- all the problems that progressives run into when they're forced to deal with the obvious issues of biological sex and propagation of the species. They want to fight on this battlefield, on the battle of gender. They've decided that gender, and they've just declared it, They say the science is settled, but they've declared that gender is completely disconnected from sex. Completely. That gender is just a social construct, and therefore it's completely malleable. It can be molded any way you want. It's not sex. It's completely moldable. So it doesn't matter what your biological body says. You as an individual can look within yourself, check your own feelings, and you get to decide what gender you are. At last count, there was 112 gender identities to choose from, certified by scientists and people that have all kinds of letters behind their names and diplomas on the wall. 112 genders. It's completely up to you, however you feel about yourself. Even WebMD, which is one of the most trafficked sites on the web. How many of you guys use WebMD? I'm looking stuff up all the time. My, my throat hurts. What's going on? Right? We go to the site. It is run by doctors and scientists. And even they, here's a, a quote from their site. Gender is the internal sense, the internal sense of self 
that states your gender regardless of the sex, sex assigned at birth. Some of the common gender identities are man, woman, non-binary, and genderqueer. They stop there. So it's everywhere. Gender's all about you and how you feel about yourself. And sadly, what that does is it feeds the narcissism that is so rampant in our society. It, it feeds this disconnect from reality. And if you doubt that, go on to TikTok. No, don't. But, or, or any other social media, and you will see some pretty wild displays of not just unabated narcissism, but real mental illness. Real mental illness. There's great damage being done to people today because of these ideas. Especially Gen Z, who is having to navigate this at the most difficult times of their lives, to navigate these waters. And yeah, it's easy, and you see it all over Twitter, people laughing at all the craziness and mocking it, but we, as Christians, we need to respond to this differently because we understand that this is more than just, oh, that person's right or wrong, or this person's crazy or sane. We know that spiritual souls hang in the balance. And so we have to react differently. We're aware of the schemes of the enemy, right? He seeks to always steal, kill, and destroy. And he will use gender confusion as an effective tool to keep people from knowing who God is and to keep them from knowing who God designed them to be. What an effective tool the enemy has right now in these things. One author has made this very insightful statement. I'll put it on the screen. He said, defining and creating one's own identity is a crippling task. We were not designed to do this, folks. We're not designed to carry this burden. It's exhausting to try to define your own identity. And the data tells the story. Among those who've gone through some measure of gender, gender transition, more than half still suffer from acute depression. More than 40% have admitted to suicidal thoughts. What we learn as we dig in is that in most cases, changing your physical body through hormones or through surgery or even trying to retrain your mind cannot erase that disconnect between your identity and your biological sex. The world says you can do it. I'm telling you, you can't because of God's design. It's going to create frustration and depression and, yeah, even suicide. The stats are wild. And here's one of the most dangerous aspects of this direction that we're going in right now. Both homosexuality and transgenderism have gone beyond acceptance in our culture. In fact, they progressed from acceptance to affirmation and even beyond from affirmation to celebration. We are celebrating these things this day. Now, why is that dangerous? Not only is it, culture-wide, not only is it a culture-wide celebration of sinful error, but there is a sense of a contagion taking place. And I know that's a strong word, but that's a word that's actually being used now in academic journals. There's a con you all have seen the numbers, right, of what's happening. The numbers of people that are now saying, well, I'm gay or I'm, or I'm, I'm transgender. It's skyrocketing. And actual academics are saying there's a contagion taking place here. Scientific data now shows that once a young person declares that they're either gay or transgender, it has a ripple effect and spreads to their peer group. In other words, social scientists are seeing, and this is their phrase, cluster outbreaks among peer groups, where because of social pressure and suggestibility, others in a friend group will also claim to be gender dysphoric or same-sex attracted. And here's the science behind it. When a culture holds up a group of people and says, first of all, they're oppressed, but then also says they're virtuous and should be celebrated, a lot of people are going to want to be a part of that group. And they will do whatever it takes to be a part of that group. It'll become the popular thing to do. Impressionable youth. We'll go to extremes to become a part of that group. I get to be a victim, I'm oppressed, but I'm also virtuous, and I get to be popular. People are going to look at me. So what's fed to them is attention, the attention that they crave, the validation that they want, and the meaning they're looking for in a world that is otherwise hopeless. Then, on top of all that, you add social media. Wow, all those likes and the endorphins that science has shown us that you get from all those likes, it's a tragic recipe for sexual confusion and sin. 
Here's one of the saddest parts of all this. The gatekeepers of this, who are supposed to be protecting us, to keep us sane and scientific, the doctors, utterly failing us right now. Not all of them, but many. We have doctors now prescribing hormone blockers like it's candy. And we have doctors scheduling life-altering surgeries for teenagers without hesitation. Doctors, without mental health assessment, without parental approval in some cases. You want it? Here it is. Teenagers. Shocking, isn't it? But to hesitate as a doctor is to, to hesitate to even affirm a child's gender identity is going against consensus right now. It's, it's to risk yourself being canceled. It's to actually risk even losing your, your license to practice medicine. It's insane, but that's what we're up against today. So if you're out there and you're wondering what is happening in the world... Look, maybe you're wrapped in your bubble and you don't realize, okay? But if you're reading what's happening in the world, it's, it's nuts out there. And we need to be aware of it as Christians. What does the Bible say then about sex and gender? What does the Bible say? What's actually true? Well, I know that none of what I'm about to say is a surprise to you, but it's good to reinforce these truths because this is the hope that we need to give to those who are struggling. God first formed man from the dust of the earth. And this man was not made non-binary or genderqueer. God created this man to have a specific identity and a specific anatomy designed to propagate the species. That was God's design. And then, as you're reading Genesis, this comes as a surprise. God declares that this man by himself was actually not complete, that something was lacking. In order for God's creation of man to be declared tov, the Hebrew word for good, man needed to have an azer, a helper, a being that was perfectly designed to complement him. And this helper was also to have a very specific identity, not non-binary, not genderqueer, a specific anatomy, not a spectrum to choose from, and she would be taken out of man. It's an amazing concept. In fact, she would be a man by species, but a unique variation of man. And you catch what God was doing in the Hebrew language of Genesis 2.23, where it says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In Hebrew, Adam here is called Ish, and Eve is called Isha. Same root word, but the emphasis on this unique variation of who Eve is. And the amazing thing is, it's the creation of the woman and the bringing together of these two that finally makes the creation of man as a species tov in God's eyes. Good. Very good. Hmm. Male and female, he made them. Right? Male and female, he created them, it says. And there's no confusion in that statement. Genesis 1.27. There's nothing up for debate in that statement. Not in terms of sex, not in terms of gender. In fact, Jesus himself, God who took on flesh, of whom it said, and this is, again, if you're out there looking at the arguments, of whom it said, in a way to sow doubt into the argument, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. He never talked about gender identity. And the implication is, and this is a logical fallacy, but it's used all the time, since he didn't mention it, he must have approved it called the argument from silence, and it's an obvious logical fallacy. But more importantly, Jesus backs up the claim. He restates the claim from Genesis 2. Matthew 19, he says to the Pharisees who are questioning him, have you not read? Translates in English to, you knuckleheads. Do you not know this? Because he knew they'd read it. Did the Pharisees know Genesis 2? Yeah. Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He was not unclear or confused about the situation. You would think that would end the debate, right? At least those who claim to be Christians, that should be the end of the debate. But of course, we know in the visible church, there are many inside who are actually working for the enemy. So beware. Friends, listen. The original design is what matters most. 
you got to know that. The original design is what matters most. Why do I say that? Because that is what was established before the fall, before everything got messed up, right? That was God's design for man and woman before corruption and before lies and before confusion entered into the world, entered into the minds and hearts of human beings. So all these things, the distinction of the sexes, gender identities, sexual orientation, the definition of marriage, even roles within the marriage, all of those things were laid out in the beginning, before the fall. That is so important for us to know as we're talking about these things. So for us, this has been, quote, settled science for about 6,000 years. Obvious truths that we see, first of all, in natural revelation, but then we read about also in God's special revelation to us. And it doesn't matter how many cultural trends come our way, none of that can overpower what God has established in the beginning, period. I'll give you an analogy of this, and I don't know if this makes sense. You can tell me later if it doesn't. I was looking in my closet last night, and I've got this one shirt that's this really beautiful blue color. It's just a vibrant blue. You know what I'm talking about? Picture it in your mind. Just this really vibrant blue shirt. But what if I wore that shirt over many, many years, decades, all the way to the end of my life, right? And the color over time faded. And 40 years later, you could barely tell it was even blue. Like, what is this color? And it had been washed so many times that it started to rip and the, the seams were pulling apart. And I'd spilled coffee on myself so many times that it was stained. Imagine that over time, this vibrant, beautiful blue shirt turning into that. And then imagine trying to make the argument with this tattered, stained, barely colored shirt and saying, no, this is the way it should be. This is the best picture of this shirt. This is the most glorious manifestation of this shirt. Stained, ripped, and barely discernible in terms of color. Really? Would anybody make that argument? That'd be ridiculous. To know the most glorious condition of that shirt, you'd want to go back to the beginning and say, oh, look at it then. Look how pristine it was. Look how pure it was. That's the way it was designed. That's its purpose. You wouldn't look at this thing 40 years later and go, that's the best. That's silly. Does that make sense? I don't know. It came to me late last night, so. But think about people that make that case today. They're like, oh, no, no, what's happening today is so enlightened that this is the best version of us with ignoring what it was like in the beginning. Makes no sense. All right, how do we process answers in the midst of all this? I think we start with this important statement. God's design of man and woman is good and holy. It's good and holy. And since he designed us as sexual creatures in a good and holy way, it follows that we will never find freedom or happiness by rebelling against that design. It's not going to find it. And then the opposite corollary is true as well. Freedom and happiness will increase the more we're able to embrace the way God has designed us and made us to be. And then taking one step back, we also need to accept the biblical truth about God's attributes, acknowledging that God doesn't make mistakes, that God doesn't design things by accident. He doesn't design things without a purpose involved in it. That includes sex and gender identity and the unique roles that God has sovereignly assigned to us. I know we sometimes buck up against those things, but if you want to find freedom and happiness, the best way is to embrace what God has done in you, the way he's designed you, the unique roles that he's given you. That's where you find your joy. That's where real worship is found. That's where the the world's greatest hope lies as well, in looking to God for the answers for these things. And seeing that only in the gospel can a human being's deepest emotions and needs be fulfilled. Only in the gospel can we become whole as human beings. That's the message that we bring to the table, folks, as Christians. That's where wholeness, that's where freedom, that's where joy and peace are found, is embracing God's design. By the way, despite what you might hear or read, and this this propaganda is everywhere, that these things can't be changed, that's a lie. That's a lie. Change is possible. Homosexuality is not biological. 
It is not a genetic inevitability. There have been decades and decades of, of, of anti-Christian biased scientists trying to find the so-called gay gene that they keep talking about, and they've never found it. And study after study shows the opposite, that, that this is a desire that is acquired or learned. Now, that's not to deny that some people, especially males, are born with certain physical and emotional dispositions that might make them greater candidates to fall into that lifestyle. It doesn't rule out the possibility that there are certain environmental factors, including failed and abusive relationships that can influence, particularly a boy, towards that direction. And look, we, we need to understand sexuality is very, very complex. We have to always be careful we don't do some reduction thing where we try to make it simple because it's not simple. But the point is this. Because sexual orientation and gender identity are not baked into our genetic code, that means that these desires can be counteracted. They can be. It means that transformation is possible. And Scripture tells us that that transformation is possible. Not only does it tell us that, but there's examples in Scripture of it. The Bible gives us those examples. Now, before I go there, we're going to look at one. Let me also make this important statement. By the way, I feel like there's so many qualifiers this morning. Because this is such a touchy subject, right? You feel like you have to qualify yourself all the time. But listen, this is a really important thing, guys. There are men and women in every church in America, including ours, that are struggling with same-sex attraction and gender confusion. We should know that. I'm talking about real born-again Christians who are engaged in a very serious battle with sin. Sometimes that, that sin is publicly known, but more often than not, because of the, the shame that's connected to it, it's a private battle that might be brought, you know, several, just a small group of trusted friends might be brought into it. But those things are happening in every church, including Oak Hill. And this is just one more reason that we need to be careful and sensitive and empathetic when these subjects come up. Because it's very personal and very hard for some people. And you don't know, behind the smile of that person you're greeting on Sunday, you don't know what might really be going on in terms of the struggles of their hearts. So let's be careful. Let's be cautious. Let's be loving. And the reality is a gospel-minded church ought to be a place where people who are struggling with these things do feel welcomed and loved. That message hasn't been clear enough in the last 30 years or so. They should be welcomed and loved. For those who want help, for those who want to align themselves with God's design, they should find the church a place of hope and a place of refreshment for their souls. They should feel here at Oak Hill a surprising love and a, a sense of family and a relentless pursuit of truth that is radically different from any other community, so-called community, that they can find out there. A person struggling with gender identity or homosexuality, same-sex attraction, should feel more at home here than out in the world if we're doing our job, if we're loving as we should. Okay, grab your Bibles. <laughs> Ooh, that was a long introduction. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I want to look at a couple verses in 1 Corinthians 6 that tell us about this transformation. 1 Corinthians 6, and just a bit of context while you're finding it. You might recall the first four chapters of this letter focus on something very interesting. Fleshly divisions within the local church. I know we're all shocked by that, right? Factions developing in the church and people lining up behind certain leaders. And yet in chapter 5, so four chapters of that in chapter 5, we see that this same group of people are unwilling then to separate themselves from a man who's in the church, who's involved in horrible sexual sin. And Paul rebukes the entire church for failing to exercise church discipline and remove that guy from the fellowship. And when we turn the page and then come here to chapter 6, once again, Paul takes up an issue of division in the body, but in a very specific way. He talks about lawsuits that are being filed against fellow church members. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, announcement time. Uh, Kenny Peaster just filed a lawsuit against Glenn Kelly. <laughs> and that's okay. Wait, so Right? 
arguments and disputes between Christians that bleed into the public view. That's what Paul's upset about. Like, you guys, members of the church, are now going to go in front of the world, the unbelieving world, and fight with each other. By the way, we do this on social media a lot, don't we? We post something designed to what? Cause people to fight. And then unbelievers look at our Facebook posts or whatever, and they see Christians arguing and fighting with each other, even sometimes calling each other names. What a testimony. So Paul shames the church for this, because this is embarrassing. Five times in this chapter, he says, do you not know? Same thing that Jesus said, right? Do you not, have you not read? Do you not know these things? And Paul assumes that they know. It's just that their life, their theology, is not lining up with their testimony. Verse 7, I'll just end here or start here. Actually, then, it's already a defeat for you that you've lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. And here comes the shocking question posed in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Woo. Mic drop there. Catch this now. Even if you have a valid case against your brother, your witness to the gospel in front of the unbelieving world is more important than winning that argument in public, Paul says. So Paul says, are you even saved? That's basically what he's asking. Paul wants the Corinthians to know just how bad this is. So he goes on to say, are you even saved? Are you even justified before God? Because you should know unrighteous people, like the way you're acting right now, they don't get into heaven. Ooh, that's wild. And to prove his point, he, he writes out what theologians call a vice list. Okay, now this is a broad list of sins. It's not designed to be all-inclusive, but it represents the types of sins that, listen to me now, if carried out as a lifestyle and not repented of, carried out as a lifestyle and not repented of, will prohibit somebody from entering into the kingdom of God. So Paul writes, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators... Okay, those are those who are commit sexual sin outside of marriage, nor idolaters, people who serve other gods, nor adulterers, those who violate the marriage covenant, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now stop there. The word for effeminate there is malakoi in the Greek, and it refers to something that was common in the, in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Male prostitutes, men, young men prostituting themselves with other men. In a more shocking case, it could also refer to a boy that is kept as by an older man in a homosexual relationship. That's what that word refers to. And then we have arsenokoitai in the Greek, which is the generic word for homosexuals. Okay, so it's very clear. There's not a, it's not, I, I've, seen the, I've seen books written about how this doesn't mean what Paul intended it to mean. It says what it says. Okay, homosexuals. Verse 10, nor thieves nor the covetous, that's one who lusts after what others possess, nor drunkards, nor revilers, revilers are people who slander others falsely, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, let me just repeat myself. You cannot continue in these things as a lifestyle and claim to know Christ. It's that simple. It's that simple. Because the Holy Spirit lives within believers the believer will always repent of sin, will always come back to God, and will continue to strive in, a, you know, in an increasing measure to put that sin to death in his or her life. That's what marks the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. But the Bible gives no peace to somebody who is perpetually and unrepentantly engaged in these things as a lifestyle. Okay, make sense? Now, in verse 11, we get the good news. Actually, great news. Such were some of you. The whole argument here in chapter 6 hinges on that statement. Such were some of you. Yes, it's true. There were people in Corinth, first century Corinth, true born-again Christians who once lived in these ways, including in a homosexual lifestyle. But no longer. Paul writes it in the past tense. Once you were this way, once you were Malakoi, once you were homosexual in your lifestyle, but no longer. This is a clear biblical hope for anybody who is battling same-sex attraction or gender confusion. Such were some of you. Now, in saying that, does that mean that if a person gets saved, that whole temptation just disappears? No. 
Does that mean it's going to become easy? Probably not. Like any other sin, there could be setbacks and failures. But listen to me now. When you're truly saved, you have the Holy Spirit within you working to sanctify you. And so the power to change is present within you. Not your power, his power. Right? But more importantly, when Christ is your high priest, your position before God is not in doubt, even when you stumble and fall. When when you are truly born again and Christ is your high priest, your position before before God is not in doubt. You are his child, eternally loved and eternally forgiven. Our job is to stay in the battle. Right? Leaning into cooperating with the work the Spirit wants to do inside of us. Look at the rest of the truth then in verse 11. But you were washed, meaning you were cleansed from sin. You were, the, the blood of Christ cleansed you from all sin. You were sanctified, meaning you have been set apart now as a child of God. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, meaning that God declared you righteous. Even though you were dirty, God has declared you to be clean and pure in His sight. Friends, this is what we call biblical conversion. This is, I mean, this is, when we talk about sex and gender and all these different things, this is what matters. This is the story. Such were some of you, but not now. This is biblical conversion. God is able to grab hold of people that live in one of those verse 10 lifestyles and turn them into a verse 11 saint. That is good news. Conversion is a new birth. It's a new life. It's, a new, it's becoming a new creation. It's being filled with new affections. Conversion is what happens when God awakens those who are spiritually dead and then enables them to repent of their sins and to place their trust in Christ alone. It's a transferring from one kingdom to another. It's a transferring from darkness to light, from idol worship to God worship, from self-rule to God rule, from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's biblical conversion. That's what we need. That's what every human being needs. So forget all the nonsense in this Canadian law that forbids conversion therapy. That is a completely different concept. You've got to know that. We're not talking about conversion therapy. We're talking about biblical conversion. Completely different things, folks. Completely. Frankly, we need to help people see this, right? Whether it's helping our lawmakers to see it or our fellow citizens or even other Christians in the church to see that when we talk about conversion, it may not be the same thing they're thinking of. Scripture's clear that we have to be converted. Apart from the new birth, we cannot know God in a saving way. We cannot experience forgiveness of sins and we will not enter into the kingdom of God. So conversion is absolutely necessary. And the thing that we celebrate as believers here this morning, it's not only necessary, but it's so beautiful. And it's so powerful. Conversion is beautiful in its miraculous nature. The the fact is, guys, anybody who finds God, later on, what do you realize? Oh, God found me. (laughs) I mean, it really felt like I found God, but actually God found me. He's the one who called us. He's the one who washes us. He's the one who justifies us. Due to nothing good in ourselves, God seeks us out and saves us. So every single conversion of a sinner is a miracle because God has moved. Not because we said, oh, I want to say a prayer today. No, no, because God intervened in time and space and saved us. That's a miracle. Conversion is beautiful in the way it unfolds. Consider the defining moment of your life when you were saved. Think about it. Here you were living under the shadow of the wrath of God, living as his enemy, having no desire to turn to him, not believing him in any way, worshiping only yourself, and in the blink of an eye, in a moment of time, think about this, God grabbed hold of you, and he opened your eyes to the truth, and he saved you, and everything from that point forward changed. Conversion is the most radical change in position and perspective that any person on earth can or will ever experience. Think about that. And then think about all the ways that God saves people. Every one of us has an amazing story. That's why we love to hear testimonies. Some very dramatic. Some very ordinary. 
Some people got saved the first time they heard the gospel. Sometimes people need a whole lifetime. But everyone's a miracle. Every story matters. And the angels celebrate equally at the news of every single person that is converted. It's beautiful. The way God has done it, God is, Grant will love this, God is the supreme artist. Is he not? And every way that he saves people is beautiful in in its artfulness. It's beautiful. At the end of the day, conversion is beautiful because of its source. Because the creator is glorious, everything he does is glorious. Because God is beautiful, conversion is beautiful. And the mind-blowing truth that we read in Scripture is that somehow this, this God that we can't even fathom was willing to step into time and to take on flesh and to die on a cross for us and then to mark us out and to save us, to know our name and to love us in the way that he does and to write us into his story. That's mind-blowing. Friends, I know that sexuality and gender are they're difficult topics and they're very muddled today. They're confusing. They're hard to pin down. But always look to Scripture, to the way God has designed us. He has been clear on the subjects. He's been consistent on them. The question that we face, and this is the hope that we can give to others, the question we face is this. Will we trust in our finite wisdom as human beings, as creatures, and allow ourselves to be swept up into cultural trends and ideas Or will we align ourselves with eternal divine truth? That's the question to pose to your unsafe friends. Will you submit your very fallible, finite wisdom and look back to God's eternal truth and the design in the very, very beginning? What you once were is not the issue. The issue is who do you belong to right now? Who's your God? Have you been washed? Have you been sanctified? Have you been justified by God? Here at Oak Hill, may we continue to preach this message and stand on these truths regardless of what the world throws at us. Amen? I want you to bow your heads. Here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to pray for you. I want you to pray. Just spend a few moments in quiet time with the Lord. I want you to think back to your conversion. I want you to think back to what you were and what God has made you to be today. And just spend a a little bit of time praising him and thanking him for that.